Well, if you have your Bible, let me invite you to be finding your place in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. You know, uh, down through the centuries, there have been really a, just a number of remarkable discoveries, one of which uh, there was a discovery made in 1799, the close of the 18th century. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte and his armies were campaigning in Egypt with the intention of dominating the eastern Mediterranean region. And really what his intention was, was to really cut off Britain from its, you know, its stronghold on trade as far as India and, uh, and the east was concerned. Well, in 1799, Napoleon's army found something that is considered to be one of the most significant discoveries in modern history. You say, well, what was it that they found? Well, while they were digging uh, sort of an embankment for a fort, they were digging in the Nile River Delta, uh, Napoleon's army found what has been referred to as the Rosetta Stone. Maybe you're familiar with the Rosetta Stone from history. Now, I'm not talking about the language software that you can download to your computer to teach you how to speak Spanish. But the concept uh, of the Rosetta Stone software comes from this discovery way back in 1799. Now, in the 19th century, the Rosetta Stone helped scholars crack the, the code to deciphering Egyptian hieroglyphics. Up until that point, linguistic scholars had no clue uh, to interpret. They had no clue what hieroglyphics uh, had to say. But it was the Rosetta Stone that helped break that code. And so the stone really was, it was a decree that was made about Ptolemy V, who was the king at the time. And it dates way back to 196 B.C. Now, what made the Rosetta Stone so significant was there were really three languages. This decree was in three languages, one of which was Egyptian hieroglyphics. The other two was uh, Demotic Egyptian, which was sort of the common street speak in ancient Egypt. But then there was ancient Greek. So you had hieroglyphics, you had Demotic Egyptian, and then you had uh, the Greek language, and so scholars were well familiar with the Greek language, and that helped them in turn. They learned a lot about hieroglyphics, and so they were able to decipher hieroglyphics because of the Rosetta Stone. They said, why are you telling us that? Well, because when you come to the last four verses of Daniel chapter 9, we find what in many ways is the Rosetta Stone of Bible prophecy. Uh, because here in Daniel chapter 9, we're given a prophecy known as the prophecy of the 70 weeks that really helps us decipher the big picture of God's plan as far as Bible prophecy uh, is concerned. Um, this, this deals with God's big plan for the ages and how Israel is involved in that and ultimately uh, how it centers around God's redemptive plan. Many scholars have referred to this as the backbone of Bible prophecy. Uh, Daniel 9 is one of the most significant passages recorded in Scripture as it relates to the coming of Christ. Isaac Newton even said, we could stake the truth of Christianity on this prophecy alone as it was made five centuries before Christ. 
as it pointed to his first advent. And I'm going to show you how it even points to what's going to happen before his second advent. So you're there, Daniel chapter 9. Let's begin reading verse 20. Daniel says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you were greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Now let me just kind of call a time out here for just a second. Uh, I use the ESV, and you'll notice in the translator's notes to the ESV, uh, in my copy, it's at the bottom of the page, uh, verse 25, that last part could be translated. The punctuation is different. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, period. It shall be built again, but in a troubled time. So, so the idea, and I think the NASB translates it that way, gets it right. The idea is, in the original language, where there is no punctuation, by the way, the idea is the, the first seven weeks and the 62 weeks ought to be seen together. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. And then, verse 26, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now this is Daniel's 70 weeks. I want to speak from that subject. This is the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Now, let me just go ahead and say this as a disclaimer. I realize that uh, within Christian, evangelical Christian circles, there are a variety of interpretations that have been offered as to uh, this particular prophecy. And historically, uh, Christians have been in, you know, two or three different camps uh, with regard to eschatology or the kingdom last things uh, you've got those who are in an amillennial camp who sees much of this as being figurative and fulfilled in the first advent of Christ uh, then there is the premillennial position which I'll be honest I'm in that camp 
that sees uh, Bible prophecy as it relates to Israel, uh, as it relates to a future kingdom of Christ as being a literal kingdom that's going to be established when Christ returns to the earth. And so from a premillennial standpoint, uh, we look at this passage and see much of this being fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, and yet there also still is an aspect that is yet future, as is the case with much Bible prophecy. We've seen that in our study of the book of Daniel. Now here's the thing, whether you're in an amillennial position or a premillennial position or a panmillennial position, you just trust it's all going to pan out in the last days and God's going to sort it all out. Let me tell you, this is not a cause for us to not have fellowship with one another, right? Because here's the thing, one of these days when we're all sitting together at the table with the Lord Jesus in his kingdom, I'm going to look across the table at my amillennial friend and say, I told you so, okay? But... <laughs> But keep in mind that this is not the first prophecy concerning the future that Daniel has been shown, okay? Uh, the other two important prophecies have come in chapters 2 and 7, both of which concern the future of Gentile world empires. That is, they're not Jewish empires, but Gentile kingdoms, empires. And so in the prophecy given way back in chapter 2, uh, you know, in response to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has as Daniel interprets that dream, Daniel was shown sort of this broad sweep of human history from his day in Babylon, leading all the way up until the last days. And there'll be a final Gentile world empire uh, that will be destroyed as God's own son establishes his kingdom. I, I believe you see that in that prophecy of the second chapter. Then you get to chapter 7. In chapter 7, Daniel had been given the same prophecy, but with more specific detail as it related to that final empire that would be in power in the last days. And it contained the whole element of the little horn who would come to power, who would be at the helm of that final world power, who in chapter 7, verse 25 uh, says that he will speak words against the Most High and will wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half a time. And that's a reference to the three and a half year period known as the Great Tribulation. And this little horn figure uh, is Antichrist. So the visions that Daniel has really up until that point, up until you get to long about chapter 8, they all deal with Gentile kingdoms, Gentile empires. You even see this reflected in the original language of the text, which is Aramaic from, from chapter 2 on through the end of chapter 7, verse 28. And that was significant because, again, all of those prophecies concerning the Gentiles are mentioned in those chapters. So it's appropriate that the original language would be in that Aramaic, which would have been a, a widely spoken language uh, in, in Babylon. But chapter 8, from chapter 8 and beyond, the focus here in Daniel turns away from the Gentiles and is turned toward Israel and the Jewish people. And so the original language from chapter 8 to the end of the book is Hebrew. And the prophecy that's found in the last four verses of chapter 9 
really presents us with the plan that God has in mind as it concerns Israel's future. And, and, and in particular, God's redemptive plan. What God has in store uh, for Israel, who uh, is his chosen means through which he's going to bring blessing to the world. You remember, that's the Abrahamic blessing. That's, that's, that's the Abrahamic promise that was given. God chose Abraham and Abraham's descendants because God intended to bring blessing to the whole wide world. And so Israel is going to be the channel of that blessing. By the way, it's through Israel, folks, that we have, God, God chose the instrumentation of Israel and Israel's prophets and the apostles through whom we've been given this prophetic revelation known as the Bible. It's through the chosen instrumentation of Israel that the Messiah made his entrance into our world. The Lord Jesus Christ was a Jewish man. And it all had to be that way, God, just by the, the choice of God from eternity past. But what we're given at the close of chapter 9 is something that really helps us cut through the fog of our time. I don't know, you remember the other morning, I mean, it was just so foggy around here. You could not hardly see, uh, you know, just beyond your vehicle if you were going down the road. And, and early morning, you had to get out. You, it was just traffic was creeping, barely crawling because of such a heavy fog. And I thought about that this week, and I'm thinking, you know something? That really is sort of an illustration of our day. Uh, humanity tries to find himself cutting through the fog, wondering what in the world is going on in our world. But folks, God has given us prophecy as his people, as a means of not just stoking our curiosity and so that we can fill out our charts and all of that, but he's given us his prophetic word to help us cut through the fog of our times, which means we don't have to get caught up in the confusion and the chaos of the day because we know that God is working behind the scenes, behind the stage of human history. He's bringing all things to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something that Daniel is going to learn here as it's revealed to him in this ninth chapter. So in this chapter, I really want us to consider this prophecy of the 70 weeks, and I want you to notice a few things about this prophecy. Number one, notice with me the prayer that is involved. The prayer that is involved. You'll notice in verse 20 that Daniel says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. Now you ought to underline the four verbs that are used there in that, that verse. Speaking, praying, confessing sin, presenting his plea. And it really just summarizes the prayer that's recorded back up in the previous 19 verses. So you really can't understand the significance of the prophecy of the 70 weeks until you grasp the significance of Daniel's prayer that precedes it. So what is it exactly that Daniel had been praying for? Well, he said he'd been present, uh, presenting his plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God. Zion, Jerusalem, the temple, the place where God had made his presence to dwell in years past. All of that has been on Daniel's heart. The captivity of which he was now in perhaps the 67th or 68th year, the captivity was brought on because of God's people's disobedience. They had disobeyed God. They had worshiped idols. They had a form of religion. 
but it wasn't authentic. It wasn't true. Uh, Their hearts were not with God, and God allowed his people to be carried off into captivity as punishment and judgment for their sins. And so God's people have been in Babylon. Daniel's been in Babylon the whole time. And yet, while there, we're told back up in the first couple of verses of the chapter that he happened to be reading one day in the book of Jeremiah. He was reading the prophecy of Jeremiah. And it was there that he discovered God's intention to judge the Babylonians at the end of 70 years, after which he would bring his own people back into their, their native land. He would bring the Jews back to Jerusalem. He would bring the Jews uh, back to Judah. This was the plan of God. But it would come at the end of 70 years. And so Daniel realizes he's an old man at this point. He's come to the end of that. It's the first year of Darius the Mede. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen to the Medes and the Persians as as a means of God's judgment. And now Daniel knows that God's about to do something. So what is it that he's doing in chapter 9? He's praying. His heart is moved to pray and to intercede on behalf of his nation. He's been deeply affected within his spirit by God's word, gripped with the sense of his own sinfulness, the sin and the disobedience of his people, and he's crying out to God, Lord, would you honor your word? Would you move your people back to their inheritance Would you make your face shine once more on your sanctuary, which has been desolate? That's Daniel's prayer. And so one person has said it this way, this long preamble of 23 verses leading up to the great revelation of the 70 weeks is in itself a testimony to the importance of this revelation. You want to understand the importance and the significance of the prophecy of the 70 weeks, then you need to know something about Daniel's prayer because it's given in answer to Daniel's prayer. Now let me make some application here for just a second. There is absolutely nothing more pressing right now for our nation than for God's people to be praying. These are days that call for God's people to pray and intercede on behalf of our national scene. Whether it be the division the political division, uh, anarchy, moral chaos, the quagmire of relativism that we as a people have sunk down into. Folks, God's people have got to pray. And let me tell you something, you'll do a whole lot more good for the kingdom of God in your prayer closet than you will spouting your opinions on your Facebook page. Are y'all listening to me? Would to God that we would have as much urgency to pray for our nation and to go to God on behalf of our nation like we're all too quick to tweet about it. You know what the book of James says, let every man be swift to hear and slow to tweet. (laughs) And what I'm saying is it's easy for us to just want to get caught up in the spirit of the age, right? Right? It's easy for us to, regardless of what you see and how you interpret the events that have happened recently, let me tell you, we've got to get on our faces before God. We've got to pray. We've got to seek God's face. God is sovereign over circumstances. Daniel understands this. That's why he's praying. So there's a lot we can learn about how to pray for our country right here from Daniel's prayer in this chapter. Now, notice the interruption that Daniel experiences to his prayer. You see this there in verse 20. He says, while I was speaking and praying. 
Verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer. Now notice what happens. Imagine the scene. Imagine you're praying. And you're in the middle of your prayer when someone, lo and behold, comes up behind you and taps you on the shoulder. <laughs> There's an interruption that happens here. And, and, and what is it? It's, 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 it's who is it? Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, is sent from God to Daniel with a very important message. In the midst of his prayer, he comes with a message. He comes with an answer to Daniel's prayer. Now, let me tell you, every time you see Gabriel mentioned in Scripture, he's always bringing important news of some kind as it relates to God's redemptive plan. He's only mentioned, I guess, about four times in the pages of Scripture, a couple of times here in Daniel. Uh, He's mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. Some 500 years after this point in Daniel 9, it's going to be Gabriel who appears to a priest by the name of Zechariah to tell him that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a son, and that son is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. It's Gabriel who gives the announcement to Mary that she's the chosen instrument who's going to give birth to that Messiah, God's own son. So whenever Gabriel shows up, it's always to announce big news. And in particular, news that relates to God's redemptive plan. So even before Daniel has finished praying, Gabriel is there with an answer. Now notice the detail that he's there at the time of the evening sacrifice. And as far as the way the Jews reckon time, that would have been three o'clock in the afternoon, or it would have been the ninth hour, as it was referred to. It was also a time for prayer. Now, in the days leading up to the captivity, before the captivity, the evening sacrifice was a daily time when a lamb was slain and offered to God as a sacrifice for sin. And so as the flesh of that sacrificial animal was consumed on the altar, smoke uh, would go up, it would rise from the temple grounds, sins would be confessed, The man who brought the sacrificial lamb uh, would lay his hands on its head as a means of identifying with that sacrificial animal, and then the lamb would be killed and offered up in that man's stead as a sacrificial animal. So it's, it's significant then that Gabriel is coming to Daniel at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now let me, let me show you something. Uh, up until this point, there had been no evening sacrifice made on the temple mount for 70 years. The temple mount has been in ruins. There's been no temple there. Daniel and the rest of the Jewish nation, they've been in captivity. Now it's some 67, 68 years later, and yet it's the hour, Daniel says it's the hour of sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, it's a time for prayer. That tells me that in spite of living out his days nearly seven long decades in a pagan place, he never forgot the truth. He never forgot what God's expectations were. He never forgot his own sin and his need for God's grace. Now, to be sure, there were others who perhaps had just been assimilated on into the culture of Babylon and adopted a Babylonian mindset and a Babylonian worldview and a Babylonian religion. Not all the Jews, obviously, but you no doubt there were some. Which, by the way, it's so easy for us in topsy-turvy days when life is so different than we've ever been accustomed to. It's easy for you, if you're not careful, to get so disconnected from the family of faith. Sunday just becomes another day of the week. A day for me to do whatever I want to do. 
It's become the new Saturday. Daniel didn't forget the priority of worship and prayer. That's the point I'm trying to make here. It's at the evening sacrifice, the hour of prayer, which would have been the ninth hour, Gabriel comes to Daniel with an answer. Which, by the way, the gospel writers tell us, you know when it was that Jesus, on the cross, prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the ninth hour. It's at 3 p.m. It's at the time of evening sacrifice in the temple. It's at the ninth hour when the Lamb of God himself is going to breathe his final breath and with his final breath make this statement, it is finished. It's at the ninth hour, the evening sacrifice, that the veil of the temple is going to be torn in two from top to bottom as God's own son, as the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world draws his final breath. So don't you think that this is significant? That here's a prophecy concerning God's redemptive plan. Gabriel is coming to him with an answer to his prayer, but he's coming at the ninth hour. He's coming at the time of the evening sacrifice. He's coming with this message that God has not abandoned his people. God has not abandoned his plan. Even though the world from their vantage point had been turned upside down, God was still ruling and reigning from heaven and God would accomplish his purposes. Wow. So that's the prayer then. Now the insight that's given, the interruption comes, what's the insight that's given? Verses 22 and 23. Why had Gabriel come? Daniel says, he made me understand. Speaking with me. And and he says, Daniel, I've come to give you insight and understanding. So Gabriel had been sent from God's presence with the task of giving Daniel both insight and understanding. That word insight means to cause to have comprehension. It's this idea of grasping the truth of something. He's saying, Daniel, I've come to help you grasp, get a hold on the truth of what God is up to. And in that word understanding, this refers to perception. Uh, It's a word that means to see into something. Understanding, uh, insight, all of this is connected. God is going to give Daniel some insight into what truly was about to go down on the world stage as far as his people was concerned, as far as his redemptive plan was concerned. But notice the insight that Daniel receives into his situation, it comes supernaturally. He doesn't get this from reading an article on Google. Uh, He doesn't get this through the grapevine of his friends. This is something that supernaturally, this is insight that's given Daniel in response to Daniel's prayer and his time of personal Bible study. You want to have insight? You want to be able to cut through the fog of the day? Be a man and woman of prayer and a man and woman who spends time in this book right here. They say, well, it's easy for you to say. I mean, Daniel, he's got somebody like Gabriel tapping him on the shoulder and giving him an answer to prayer. I've never had Gabriel tap me on the shoulder like that. But what we don't realize is that we're far better off now than Daniel was then in his day. You say, what do you mean? I'll tell you exactly what I mean. We've been given the gift of God's own spirit who's come to take up residence within us as believers in Jesus Christ. Which means we're far better off than Daniel was in his day. I don't need Gabriel by my side when I've got the spirit of God inside of me. It's the spirit who gives insight 
Jesus said in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor does it know him. The world can't get to the truth on its own. No matter how hard it tries, no matter how hard it digs, no matter how hard it works, because God's got to do something on behalf of a person to open their eyes up to the reality of what really is true. And then beyond that, the spirit of truth comes to live within the believer in Jesus. Jesus says, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And it's the Holy Spirit who puts the pieces into place in our minds so that the picture becomes clear. That's why when you open your Bible as, as, as a, a believing man or woman, we rely upon the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to bring the truth of God to bear upon our lives so that we can grasp the truth, what it is God wants to say for our particular situations in life. God has insight he wants to give you into your marriage relationship. God has insight that he wants to give you into what's really going on behind the scenes uh, in, in our culture today. God has insight that he wants to give you as it relates to being a, a mom or a dad, a husband, a wife. But you're gonna get it as you spend time in prayer and in fellowship with God with an open Bible. That's what's happening as far as Daniel is concerned here. And so Gabriel says, at the beginning of your pleas, Daniel, a word went out. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Now, isn't that a wonderful statement right there? Daniel, you were loved. Keep in mind everything that Daniel's confessed about himself up until this point. He's confessed his sin. Like Isaiah, he's identified with the sinful people who have unclean lips. He realizes that the captivity, uh, the, the, the terrible disarray of God's own people, uh, the Jewish nation was a result of their sin, and Daniel includes himself in that number. And yet in response to that, here's Gabriel with the message telling Daniel that his pleas for mercy have been heard, and he is greatly loved. Isn't that some security right there? And yet it's, the, it's, the, it's what causes us often to want to retreat into our idolatry because we're looking for something to bring us some security, something to scratch an itch within our hearts and souls when in reality we just don't believe that we're loved by God. But let me tell you something. You are loved by God. In Jesus Christ, you have been accepted in the beloved. That's why the Apostle Paul's opening statements in uh, the book of Ephesians are so wonderful. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And it's all to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Daniel, you are greatly loved. Daniel, you are beloved. That same statement is true for you as a believer in Jesus Christ. I don't have to plead for a hearing with God because in Christ, I already have one. That's why we can come boldly before the throne of grace and present our pleas to our heavenly father, much like a child who's confident of his father's love can come crawl up in the lap of that daddy and ask daddy whatever it is is on his little heart. That's what's been given to us, folks, in Jesus so this prophecy, it involves this prayer. Now, I've got to move on from this quickly. 
Notice the purpose ultimately that's involved in this prophecy of the 70 weeks. Verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now the details of the prophecy that follow in verses 25 through 27 ultimately show how all of this is going to be brought about in a prophetic way. Not detailed upon detail upon detail, but big picture view. This is what God's going to do. There are six objectives that are mentioned in this verse of what God is about to do and how he's going to use Israel as a chosen instrument. So some common observations here we need to be familiar with as I kind of bring this quickly to a close. Uh, you'll notice that Gabriel mentions a specific period of time that is marked out by God. And that specific period of time is 70 weeks. He says 70 weeks are decreed. And the word decreed there comes from a Hebrew word that means to cut out or divide. The idea behind it is that the time period has been divided out because God has determined it. In his sovereignty, he's decreed a block of time in which he's going to accomplish some things as his redemptive purpose is concerned. Seventy weeks are decreed by God. The timeline will occur this way because God has decreed it. That's what Gabriel is saying here. A second observation would be this. Notice that the prophecy is directly related to the Jews and to the city of Jerusalem. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people, Daniel. Who is his people? The Jews. Your holy city, Jerusalem. So this is not Gentile prophecy, unlike previous visions. A third observation would be the total scene uh, that, that's, that's revealed here. It's going to last 70 weeks. God has decreed these weeks. He divides them up into three periods, 7, 62, and then one final week in verse 27. Now, here's the thing. You're reading this for the first time, and you would be under this impression that week refers to seven days. That's our understanding of a week. Someone says, hey, I'll see you in three weeks. You automatically assume, well, that means I'm going to see him in 21 days. Really? That, that's, about, that's, that's how it works as far as how we reckon time. But it's not weak in the sense of seven 24-hour days that are being referred to here. But instead, that word that's translated weeks there translates a word that means sevens. So this is the prophecy of the 77s. 77-year time periods in which God is going to be working to bring about his redemptive plan. Now, if you find that hard to understand, keep in mind that the context helps determine the meaning of that word there. What is it that Daniel has been so burdened with? It's, it's what he's found reading Jeremiah in the 70 years of captivity. Why had God's people been in 70 years to begin with? It's because they had neglected the seventh year for 490 years, every seventh year was intended to be a year of Sabbath rest. And you can read about that in Leviticus, uh, I believe it's chapter number 25. 
So in Jewish law, here, here's, here's what God expected from his people. The seventh day was to be a day of Sabbath rest. The seventh year was to be a year of Sabbath rest, which meant that they couldn't plant. They couldn't till their gardens. They couldn't raise crops and that kind of thing. God wanted the, year to have a, he wanted the, the land to have a year of rest. And it was supposed to be that way every seventh year. I believe it's Leviticus 25 that even goes on to say that, uh, that every 50th year, after seven of those Sabbath years, after the 49th year, there was to be a year of Jubilee, the 50th year. In that year, all debts were canceled. Someone says, I wish 2021 was a year of Jubilee. I'd have my mortgage canceled if I were, right? But all debts were canceled. All slaves were freed in the year of Jubilee. Property went back to its, its, its rightful owner, say if it was held in trust or something like that, the year of Jubilee. Now, why is Israel in captivity to begin with? 2 Chronicles chapter 36 says that they had neglected the Sabbath years. Going back before the captivity, 490 years, they had neglected those Sabbath years. And so God expels them from the land as the result of their disobedience so the land can have its Sabbath rests, 70 years. Because for 490 years, they had failed to take God at his word. So this prophecy then, Daniel is so concerned about the sin of God's people going back 490 years prior to the captivity, resulting in the 70 years of captivity, but God's coming to him with an answer, and the answer has to do with the 490 years of Israel's future and what God is going to do, and those years are divided up into 77 year time periods, the 70 weeks. Six objectives are going to be accomplished, and you can read them there, verse 24. What is it that's going to be accomplished when the 70 years are over? Listen, transgression is going to be finished. In other words, sin is going to run its course. Objective number two, put an end to sin. Not only is it going to be restrained in principle, but the power of sin is going to be broken. Objective three, to atone for iniquity. This refers to reconciliation between God and man. So notice the first three, the first three objectives deal with sin and its eradication. And then you'll notice the last three objectives deal with righteousness and its application. Objective four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Which, by the way, that's what we long for politically. That's what we long, we long to see true righteousness and justice rain down like a mighty river across our land, don't we? And every day we're presented with the imperfection of man's system and the problems associated with it because of man's sin. But folks, the time is coming in the kingdom when righteousness is going to indeed roll like a mighty river when King Jesus rules and reigns from his throne. Objective number five, to seal both vision and profit. That means all prophetic revelation will come to a close. Objective number six, to anoint a most holy place. God's going to make his face shine on his sanctuary once more, but he's going to do it in a way that Daniel could possibly never even begin to imagine. Now, folks, let me tell you something. Verse 25, Daniel is told when this countdown really will begin as far as Israel's concerned, the 70 weeks it's from the word that goes out to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. 
Most Bible scholars associate that with the decree that went out from King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah chapter 2, 445 B.C. As the prophecy of the 70 weeks is concerned, it's after the 7 and the 62, where in other words, after 69 weeks have come to a close, an anointed one, a Messiah, is going to be cut off. It means killed. And he will have nothing. You add the chronology up from the decree from Artaxerxes in 445 B.C., 483 years, it brings you to the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And in particular, it brings you right about to the point of time when he's making his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, riding on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, and the people are laying down palm branches and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I've got to stop here. Stand with me for prayer this morning. Folks, I want you to know something. You need a fog or you need something to help you cut through the fog of the day. That's what God intends his prophetic word to be for you. And while there's so much that we don't understand and we approach prophecy with a humble perspective, a worshipful attitude, we look back and we see how God has been faithful throughout the centuries to honor his promises, to fulfill his prophetic word, And Christ came in his first advent to deal with sin and to usher in righteousness, albeit spiritually. So there's a sense in which all of these six objectives in uh, in verse 24 are true today for the believer in Jesus Christ. And I believe all millennial folks get that right. And yet I do believe that there still is a future as far as Israel's concerned. And and listen, the application of that righteousness in the literal sense as the Son of God is going to be seated and rule and reign from a throne in Jerusalem over the world. And all the nations of men, the kings of the earth, are going to come and bow before him. It's all the junk that's been going on in Washington. God's got it. He's got it. Heads bowed, eyes closed. If you don't know Jesus, listen. Now's the time. Today's the day of opportunity. Whether you're here in person, whether you're online, I urge you to turn from your sin. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross, who rose again, who's seated at the right hand of power, and he's soon returning. And even so come Lord Jesus. As we sing here in just a few moments, I want to give you an opportunity to come. You can respond. Our pastors are here sort of in the wings of the worship center. You can come to them. You can pray with them. They'd love to talk to you about salvation, baptism. Maybe you just need to come and pray. You're at liberty to do that. If you're watching online, listen, send us an email, connect at greenstreet.org. If you'd like to know what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus and ask about baptism, we'd love to hear from you and minister to you and your family. So Lord, thank you for your word today. Change us. Lord, make us your confident people in these days. Thank you for what you've given to us to help us make our way through the fog and the maze of life in these days. You don't want us to be in the dark. But Lord, you've given us your spirit, you've given us your word, and we have a prophetic hope in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.